0: Matthew chapter five. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving my son to soccer practice, and you know, you're kind of flying, getting everybody in the car moving, and and I'm going down the street, and I see the yellow engine light come on. I'm like, oh, oh, you know, I mean, I've already got the SRS thing, and I've learned to ignore that for the last five, six years, and uh, but the engine light, you know, that 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 sounds like it could be serious, and so I, I'm like. I'm looking, I'm looking to see if like smoke is coming out of my car because, you know, I'm, I'm working through the 200,000 mile marker on my Honda Accord. OK, and I and I want this baby to keep going. And so I'm looking to see if there's any problems that I can recognize it seems to be fine. And so I kind of just kind of make my way. Now, I have a choice, though. I have a choice. I can either ignore it and like, well, maybe it'll just the light bulb on the little engine light will go out and I won't have a problem anymore. Right. Is that how that works? Or I can address it. And. God works that way in our life. You see, God has given us his Holy Spirit. When you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, he actually seals us and marks us out as his people, and he actually gives us his very spirit, the spirit of the resurrected Christ to actually dwell within our life. And when something is not right, when we have a heart issue, when shalom, God's peace, is just not present, when we're going in the wrong direction, his spirit brings it to mind. You've got an engine trouble. God's word works in the exact same way. In fact, they work in tandem. God uses his spirit and his word to bring about a realization when something is not right in our heart and to lead us in the path of righteousness and following Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing. When we come on Sunday mornings, we are coming that God might do his work in our hearts. And that's what Jesus is doing as we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, having demonstrated and shown to the world that he is indeed truly God, the promised Messiah. He now is starting to do heart surgery among his followers. In fact, you saw at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples gathered to him. He sits down, he begins to teach them, and he begins to go to the serious heart issues of their life. And let me tell you why God does this. He wants you and I to experience the fullness of life in Christ. And in order for that to be a reality, we have to truly know who Jesus is. We have to experience that devotion and that uniting of our heart to his. And at the same time, we have to experience his power enabling us to follow as he's directed. And so that's what he's doing. In fact, we've been seeing it as we're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, he starts addressing these heart issues. The first one, in verse 21 through 26, he addresses the heart issues that move us to start destroying each other with our words. And then, what we've been focusing on is that he actually addresses the heart issues that move us to adultery. And Jesus minces no words. It's not a matter of just a physical act, it is what's taking place in your head and in your heart see, God knows and he sees and he says, I want you pure and holy. Not just putting on a good show on the outside. I want you to know the reality of my presence. I want you pure. I want you holy. And then in verses 31 and 32, he addresses the heart issues that move us to divorce. See, as we've been going through this, God has established this pattern. And what Jesus does is he tells us the, he states the commandment of the law. Then he goes and he shows the intent of what God intended by this law that he gave And then he solidifies our need for Christ, our need for him who fulfills all righteousness. Remember what Jesus says, verse 17? Hey, don't think that I came here to do away with the law. I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to actually fulfill them. I am going to fulfill every detail and every intention. And the reality is that us who are trusting Christ receive his righteousness that means that every time, and God always sees us in Christ, we actually have the righteousness of Christ because we've been united with him. Because we're gonna, as we go through this, every single one of us is, a, is an incredible failure, right? We've all fallen, fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. And not only does Christ positionally see us as righteousness in, righteous in him because of his righteousness, he credits that to our account. God intends for us to live in a righteous manner. He wants us to practice righteous living. He not only has given us a positional standing, he wants a practical reality in our life, and that reality is that you and I live holy lives, that we will be, as Jesus said in verse 13, his salt on the earth that will reflect his light and his character to the people we come in contact with. That's why Jesus addresses hard issues. You are always going to be with him. If you should pass away today, if you know Christ, you will be in his presence and you will experience the fullness of your position of righteousness. But God wants us to start experiencing that even in this life. That's why he goes to the heart. And so beginning in verse 33, he's making his way through six different illustrations of where he wants to see righteousness happen. This isn't to just say this is it. He's got six. Really, it's to be a pattern for us to see how we're supposed to understand God's word and its implications for our life. The next one he moves to is addressing hard issues that can move us to making oaths. Now, verse 33, he says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. OK, so they're familiar with this uh, Comes right out of the text here in Leviticus 19, 12, Deuteronomy 23, 23. They understand this. They were, they made oaths to God. In fact, God made oaths to his people, promising to do certain things. And in certain circumstances and times of great severity, people would make an oath. But the problem was, is that the Jewish people had moved to a practice where they were making flippant oaths all the time. And Jesus says. That's not the way for my people. You who are following me, let me show you what I want you, how I want you to live, and how I specifically want you to speak. He sets himself up as the authority. Jesus is the one who has not only given us his word; he is the author and the authority. And he says, verse thirty-four: "But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet." Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But, verse 37, this is what I want you to do, you who follow me. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is evil. See, the Jews had developed a practice of giving oaths to actually sidestep the truth. And so they wouldn't invoke God's name, but they would swear by just the very things that Jesus is referencing here about the foot, about like the earth, or hairs on their head, or by Jerusalem. I swear to you by Jerusalem that such and such is happening, or I did this, or I didn't do this. And what they were doing, though, is because they said they weren't swearing by God Himself, they could actually tell something that was not true. And so it led to rather confusion because, like, well, was it the gold in the temple or the temple? Was it Jerusalem? Was it the, and so you never really knew when they were telling the truth. And they could always say, well, I didn't swear by God or his name. I swore by truth Jesus says, no, I want you to be straightforward. When you speak, if you say something is true, it better be true. If you say no, it means no. And so what he's saying here is not that we would never take an oath. Is that He doesn't want us just flippantly, randomly, as just a casual manner of speech, throwing in all these O's. Now, we don't say O's like, I swear to you, by Jerusalem or the temple, but this is how we do it. Honestly, or I tell you the truth. Or have you heard of this one? I swear to God. And, they, and people use it almost kind of in a slang. And people do that today. Or let me tell you the truth, or let me shoot straight with you. And you know, every time you do that, you know what you're doing? You're basically saying that my M.O., my usual means and manner of speech is to not tell the truth. And so when I do speak truthfully, I've got to qualify it. This is different than how I usually talk. Now, for this one sentence, I'm going to actually tell you the truth. And, friends, you know what? When you do that, you are setting yourself up to be untrustworthy and unreliable. I do this. I'm sure you do, too. People that are always running around swearing, that, oh, I tell you the truth on this one. You know what? I have to basically deem them as unreliable. They tell me things, I'm like, well, how do I know? You're always saying, "I oh, trust me on this one or whatever. How can I trust you? Because you're setting yourself to be up untruthful. You see, God wants his people to speak truth. That's why I made, taking all these casual oaths. Now, don't misinterpret this. This doesn't mean that you couldn't take an oath, okay? God, for instance, gives oaths. Uh, even in Jesus, under oath, when he was on trial with this high priest, he actually speaks and says something to be true. Paul does it twice in the New Testament. He gives an oath, and he calls God to be his witness and his judge. You can take oaths. For instance, um, like if you're doing a deposition, or you're in court, If they say, are you, do you swear, or do you swear by God that you are telling the truth in these matters? And you can do that. It is a solemn, significant occasion in which you're saying, Yes, I want you to know that even God being my judge and my witness, I am telling the truth. And when you swear, by the way, like in a court or giving a deposition, you are doing so understanding that to lie you will face the the pain and the penalty of of justice for doing perjury, for committing perjury. It's true of a president like Clinton. Why was he impeached? Because he lied under oath it happens today. If you lie under oath, you face the full penalty of the law. It's not saying that you can't take oaths. He just doesn't want us to be saying, like, on my mother's grave or cross my heart and hope to die and all that sort of garbage. Christian, you know Christ. You follow him. We're to speak truth. And so that's what he's after here. James picks up on this exact same theme. In James chapter 5, verse 12, he says, hey, above all, this obviously was a significant problem. First century in the Roman Empire, he says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So don't run around telling people, I promise or honestly or to tell you the truth. You just speak truthfully. And so that is what he's after. You see, trust is foundational to any significant relationship. It's foundational to commerce. It's foundation in our military, government, marriage. You said you would take care of that girl. You promised that you would stand by that man. Tammy Wynette wrote you a song about it. You said you'd do it. It was your word. You're only as good as your word. In employment, you have employees. You say, hey, do such and such. I'm. This is your wage or this is your salary. You pay it. Do you think God takes it pretty seriously when you make some sort of commitment to someone and then you bail, whether it be some sort of contract or some service arrangement for goods or service or with your employees? James chapter 5 says the pay of the laborers who went out and harvested all your crops and they mowed your fields and it's been withheld with you, their cries have reached my ears and I will deal with you. God is a God of justice, and he wants us to speak truth. Haddon Robinson tells the story of a Toronto journalist in the 1950s who decided that he'd actually take, um, do a little investigative project. Apparently, they were having a lot of corrupt mechanics in the Toronto area. And so what he did is he, um, he pulled a spark plug wire off one of the spark plugs, and it made his car run really rough. And so what he did is he went to all these different shops in the Toronto area just to see who the honest mechanics were and what they'd do with this guy. And so he'd pull into shop after shop, and every single shop charged him some minimal fee. One shop, one mechanic charged him $200 to fix his car. I mean, $200 in the 1950s was a lot of money. Well, he kept going and making his way, just kind of, like, kind of shocked. Because it really all was just a little... And problem solved. Finally, he comes to a guy by the name of Fred. Fred the mechanic. And he pulls into his shop and Fred pops the hood and looks at it. Ah, oh, I see your problem. You got loose spark plug wire. <coughs> Snap that baby right in place. And the journalist, who he didn't know, he's a journalist doing his investigation, said, well, how much do I owe you? No, you don't owe anything. It's just a loose spark plug wire. Uh, no, seriously, you're not going to charge me? No, I can't take your money. Well, this guy was kind of blown away because everybody was eager to take his money. And so he said, you know, let me tell you who I am. And he told him, I'm a journalist. I write for the Toronto paper. I've been doing this investigation. He says, every single person has charged me. One guy charged me up to $200 to do just what you did. Why in the world are you not charging me? And he goes, well... I can't charge you because I'm a Christian. He says, I haven't always been a Christian. He went on to give this man his testimony. And he went on to tell this man that, hey, listen, what I do, I do for the glory of God because God is truthful, His Word is truthful, I'm supposed to be truthful. And he said this, quote, My shop is my pulpit. Well, later... On the front page of the Toronto newspaper, there was an article run on this investigation, and it was titled "This: "Fred the Mechanic, Christian, Reliable, Good to His Word." I've got a question for you. Are you trustworthy and good to your word?" Does your yes really mean yes? Is your no? Truly. Mean no. You know what happens when you lose your credibility? No one trusts you. You become insignificant, unreliable. And if you're running around making all these false O's and doing things that Jesus says not to be doing, you cannot be trusted. You're, you have a pattern of lying. Don't think that you're going to be a great spokesperson about truth, about heaven, about hell, and about Jesus. Because if you're unreliable on the matters of this earth, no one's going to think you credible about the things of God and of heaven. And if you have lost your trust, Jesus' words cuts you right to the quick. Let me tell you what you do. Let me tell you how you build reliability, integrity. You develop patterns of speaking the truth. You tell things truthfully. You don't back them up with these amped up uh, O's and listen to me and I promise you all this sort of stuff. You just speak truthfully. And when you lie, because people that develop patterns of lying, they become almost like chronic liars. Some people come to a point where they actually don't even know when they're telling the truth. And they kind of live under this huge, massive weight because they can't remember who they told what, when, how this happened, who it was. And it's just like it's like this huge weight. That is Sin confess it to God and just lay it at the feet of Jesus. And when you lie, if you're a chronic liar, you will lie again even if you're here today and you're going, I get it. I don't want to do that. When it happens, do this. You tell God about it. You confess it as sin. And then whoever you lied to, you do this. Hey, I, remember what I told you yesterday about that? Uh, that actually wasn't true. And I, I am sorry for not telling the truth. I... I wanted to make myself look good, or I didn't want to embarrass myself or hurt you. And so I said this. But it was wrong. I told God about it. I confessed it. And I'm I'm telling you, would you forgive me? Your flesh is going to hate it. You're going to be really uncomfortable. You're going to be just sweating through your shirt when you do it. But I'll tell you what's going to happen. You do that a couple of times, and you realize how serious it is to tell the truth and you'll start developing patterns of credibility. God wants his people to be trustworthy. There's something else that Jesus addresses. He's just kind of going point by point. See, I want you to be people of depth, truth, integrity. And the next thing he's going to talk about is, I want you to be people that are merciful, gracious, and loving. He's going to address next the hard issues that move us to vengeance. You see, you and I as Christians... We're called to minister to the people who may not or may not even be able to respond correctly. Whether it be people who live in the fog of a mental illness or suffer from some sort of great disability or are in poverty or are living in the great cloud of spiritual blindness. You and I, as those who follow Christ, who are salt and white, by the virtue of the proclamation of the king himself, we're called to love and be merciful and gracious. If you thought that one was tough, Jesus in these next you, is going to come and address some serious hard issues that we all face. He's going to address the hard issues that move us to vengeance. You see, God isn't interested in so much just us being good. He wants us to know his grace, his strength, his power to have the conviction of his word that we are changed by his presence and by his scripture and that we are living in his spirit. And so he's going to go after this next one. He says, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. OK, and if you ask people, hey, give me a Bible verse, even people that have never read the Bible, they, they might reference this one. Like, yeah, it says something about the eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Yeah, that's a good one. You know, they have no idea where it's from. They just heard it. Right. They like it. Maybe maybe they heard it on some sort of Western, you know, and that was kind of the whole it was a biblical movie. You know, they, they quoted that and then he shot everybody, you know. So uh, let me tell you what this is. Uh, when this is this was common in the scriptures here uh, in, in multiple places here. This is actually called Lex Talionis. OK. And what it is, is the law of retaliation. And far from it, that it's like you can seek great vengeance. Actually, it was given to limit retribution and retribution or punishment was never to be meted out by the individual. It was to be meant to be given by the civil authorities, the courts, the government, the police, the military, whoever is in charge. And so what it was was actually designed to be merciful so that actually the punishment actually fit the crime so that. What happened and oftentimes in ancient society is that there would be some sort of individual case and the guy or gal committed some sort of wrongdoing and the punishment would be far, far greater and ex- way too excessive for the crime that they did. Okay? All right. So, I mean, that happens. In, like in Iraq or, Af- or Afghanistan, okay? Somebody stole something, stole a candy bar. They drag and haul you off into a soccer stadium and they just hack off your hand or your arm. OK, now it cut back on stealing, obviously, but that was that was too excessive. That's where Lex Talionis came in. The law of retaliation. And it's to be ministered by civil authorities and by the government. And so what Jesus is going to address here is, is I don't want you acting like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Remember them? You know, you get a little verbal argument on arguing about where that fence line ought to be there. Next thing you know, they're calling each other's names. Then someone picks up a stick and thinks, you know, I think I'll hit you with this stick. And he does. Okay, well, that made you mad. So next guy pulls out his gun, shoots the guy's dog. Whoa, you just shot Rover right there in front of me. And then what happens then? He's going to amp that up. He's going to take it to the next level. And so he goes and what? He pokes your eye out. That made you mad. Now you can only see with one eye. Right? So you burn his house down. And then next thing, oh, you burn my house down and start shooting at your kids. And so you got the Hatfield and McCoy thing going on there. Hey, that's the ways of the world. One up. I'll show you who you're messing with, right? Jesus says, you know what? Listen, you follow me. Let me show you how I want you to act. You've heard about Lex Talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But let me tell you what is intended and what I intend to do in you. Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him. Also, let me tell you what's going on here. This is another verse that's taken, I would say, out of context and totally misunderstood. To to be strike with the right cheek. What's going on here is, if you were going to give someone a very serious insult and demean them, you took the back of your right hand and you'd slap them and you would hit their right cheek. It was to demean them, to strip them of all honor. Now, Obviously, maybe it's, it's done. But if you're going to hurt someone, this ain't how you're going to do it, you know. It was meant to insult them. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Someone wants to slap your right cheek, salt you, degrade you. You are greater than that because I am. And you can take it even on the other cheek. You can take their insults. Now, this does not apply like, like for governments. Well, if someone just strikes you or invades your country or in the area of self-defense. Or is this a case against the police or the military? This really has to do with insults. And this is having to do with the character of God's people when they're in these situations. OK, God has given government. Why? It's an avenger for wrongdoing. It's like it says in Romans. It doesn't bear the sword for nothing. OK, God has military. He has police. They actually execute justice. He actually says he raised them up. He actually says he puts the governors in place to do just that. They are to punish evildoers and they are to actually praise those who do good. And hopefully they're doing a good job on both. Often not the case, but nonetheless, God has given them the authority to do that. Nor is this to put you in a situation where you can't actually defend yourself. Some people try to make a case like, well, you could never defend yourself. Someone's sort going of to haul off and hit you and start hitting you and your kids and doing all these sort of bad things. You have to stand by and just kind of watch it happen. Turn the other cheek, see what... No. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to stop that individual, okay? And put them in a situation where they can no longer do harm. He's not talking about those sort of things. What he's talking about is when you're in being insulted, that you're going to turn around and retaliate. no. He says, this is what I want you to do. If they're going to do that, they're going to insult you, turn the other cheek. Show them that there is a strength and a stability in your life that comes from me that is greater than their insults. He says in the next verse, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. And this, this tunic that they're talking about, this shirt, this, they would wear this. This was the garment closest to their skin. For men, it came to about here, kind of mid-thigh, and for women, it came down to their ankles. And then they would have this outer garment that they would wear. And that, for the poor people, that's, they actually slept in that. That was like their blanket, okay? And so sometimes at the beginning of the day, they would hand that off. They would need that at the end of the day. Jesus is saying, hey, if someone is to sue and takes that tunic, kind of like your long uh, T-shirt that you're wearing, why don't you just go ahead and, and just leave justice matters to me? even when we say, hey, here is my outer garment as well. What the guy is doing there is when you're, you're trusting God and his justice, that he's going to make it right. He goes on, say, verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. See, all these things, these are counterintuitive. No one thinks like this unless you're following Jesus and living in his love and strength. And here's one, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me tell you. The Romans, a Roman soldier could at any time just immediately take people, citizens in their country, people that they'd occupied, and they could have them build projects, tend to roads, or they could force them to carry their armor for one mile. Now, the most famous example, the one that you and I are most familiar with, is by a man by the name of Simon Cyrene. And remember when Jesus is being hauled off to be crucified, they beat him to a point where he could hardly even function or stand and he could no longer carry his cross. And so they pressed a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene and and that Roman soldier said, you carry the cross. And so Simon, watching these events, was pressed into, he had no choice, and this is how things ran in the Roman Empire. They were in charge. What Jesus is saying is, someone does that. Not only go to one mile, go the extra mile. That's where the phrase comes from. Go the extra yard. Go the extra mile. You show them that there is a strength and a character in you that is greater than your circumstances that comes from Christ. He says in verse 42, Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. He says, if there is someone who is needy and who is begging and who absolutely needs resources that you have and they ask of you, you provide it to them. Why? Because you are gracious. You are like God. You represent him and you provide these resources to them. Now, he's going to later in a couple of chapters say, don't cast your pearls before swine. Okay, if someone's just trying to swindle you, you're like, well, they asked. I guess I have no choice but to give them this thousand bucks or whatever. Yes, you do. You exercise discernment. But if there's someone who is needy, someone who absolutely needs a loan, and you're in a position to provide it, you would try to. You would try to meet these needs. Now, that's what he's addressing here. He's addressing a heart issue. That you're You have a heart that wants to make God the issue, not your shirt. You want people to know his grace and his goodness. And you know how God does that? He does it through his people that reflect his character and his likeness. Now, maybe you're kind of thinking about this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You know, the guy who insults you or or rejects you and you're kind of struggling with that. Let me just tell you for the Jews how this worked. Like if someone broke into your home, the Jews, Exodus 22, verse two says this. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. See, a man who's willing to break into your home may also be willing to kill you. And what the law said is, hey, if, if he breaks into your home and there's an altercation, he dies, let me tell you, there's no blood guiltiness, guiltiness upon you. You can defend yourself. You can neutralize someone that's coming after you, but that doesn't mean that you have to put them in a coma. And so what he's saying here is, I want your heart and your life to reflect me. God has given civil government to do just that. But this is what we do. For the people that are trying to take advantage of us, trying to hurt us, we are going to leave room for God to be the just one and the one to take vengeance in our life. You want a good text on that? Romans chapter 12, verse 19. It says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You don't take matters into your own hand. What you do, these people that have hurt us, Give them to God and ask God to give you the strength for you to reflect his character and his likeness in this situation. And he says, it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. I'll take care of this. I know they have maligned you. I know they have hurt you. What they did is completely wrong. I will one day straighten it out, whether in this lifetime or the lifetime to come. He says in Romans 12, verse 20 says, but if your enemy is hungry, this is what you do. You feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you know what you're going to do? You'll heat burning coals upon his head. And this was the picture in Egypt when someone was repentant and sorrowful for wickedness that they did. They take this pan and they put these fire coals on there, symbolizing this burning uh, sense of guilt that they had and shame. He says, "You, you treat them with kindness and love. I'm going to use that. You see, that's how people come to know Christ. When they see him at work and alive in his people. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. What we do is we keep entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously. See what Jesus is doing here? He's addressing heart issues. He's addressing the heart issues that move us to vengeance. You and I, Man, someone crosses us and what happens? There's something visceral that takes place that we want revenge. We don't want to just get even. We don't want eye for eye. We want them napalmed. We want something bad to happen, a really bad. We want them to know they've messed with us. God says, I want my heart shining through you. Give these problems, these issues to me and let my love work in you in such a way that what I have just said will be a reality. And then there's one more that Jesus addresses. He addresses the hard issues that move us to hatred. Kind of related. You can see just kind of this flow that he has here. Verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you see that you shall love your neighbor. That's probably all kind of in capital letters in your Bible, right? Okay, and then you notice about the hate your enemy, that's not. You see, yes, love your neighbor, that was in the scriptures. The hate your, hate your enemy, that was not. That is actually what the Jews taught. That was kind of how they went through this, their teaching. So they had the, you're loving your neighbor. Well, let me tell you one of the ways you can love your neighbor is hate your enemy. And they came to a point where they're actually focusing on hating their enemy. And they probably weren't caring too much about loving their neighbor so much as they were hating their enemy. And they thought that this was honoring to God. Now, God certainly hates evil. There's a couple of Psalms like Psalm 139, right toward the end, Psalm 26, that even those, those who are righteous hate those who hate God. But the, the emphasis is this. God is going to reach even his enemies through evil. His love, oftentimes the love of his people. For instance, you and I, sinful, judgmental, lying, lustful, greedy, materialistic, mean-spirited, easily offended, oftentimes putting God on the shelf. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, you know what that word means? To miss the holy mark of living for God and loving Him. To miss it. While we were yet sinners, Christ, what? He poured out all His love for you. He died for you. Christ died for us. You know how God reaches the wicked? He changes their heart. He alone does the work. And oftentimes, God involves us, just like in prayer, He involves us in what He's doing. When we reflect his character and by his spirit, do as he has said. You've heard about this. Love your enemy. I mean, love, yeah, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, let me tell you what I'm after. Verse 44. But I say to you, I am the authority. Do this if you follow me. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. This isn't how you become a son of the king, son of the father. What he's implying here is these are are the characteristics of the father himself. You show yourself to be a son of the father. What is the father like? Well, he tells you right in verse 45, he causes for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what theologians call God's common grace. God is so gracious and benevolent, even to those who are his enemies, that he gives good things food, laughter, enjoyment, rain, the sun to rise and to set, whether you're just or unjust, because this is God's nature to manifest his character of goodness, of love, even to those who are unjust, unrighteous, even his enemies. He says, I want you to be like that. That's my intent. I don't want you just to know about these things. I don't want you to just read them. I want this to be a reality. And I'm going to give you my spirit so that, it may, that this may be so. He says, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Everybody does that. Look at verse 46. Do not even the tax collectors, i.e., the worst of society, those who have been Jews, He said, you know, I think we'd like to work for the Romans and we'll collect all these taxes and they let us put these surcharges. When they referred to tax collectors, by the way, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, was a tax collector. They do the same thing. Anybody can be nice to those who are nice. It will take supernatural grace for you to love even your enemy. He says, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Hey, everybody does that. Do not even the Gentiles, those who do not know God, don't they do the same? Listen, this is what I'm after. Therefore, you are to be perfect. Teleos, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to be like God. I want you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what that immediately does is put us in a place where we're like, oh, what? I mean, anybody, anybody feel like, hey, I feel pretty good about this. I, Jesus, I did it. Yes. No. We're all like, oh, man. You see, that shows us how much we need Christ. I, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He is our righteousness. He's done it for us. But he also intends for us to live righteously. That's why he has given us his spirit to reside within us. He wants people to see what God is really like. Now, I know a lot of you are into these little iPhones. And they're a phone and they have some uses. But apparently one of the things that's very uh, fascinating about iTouches and iPhones is all these apps that you can buy. Okay? And there is an app, one of the most popular apps out there that you can buy. It's called Pocket God. Don't tell me if you have this. I don't, don't raise your hand. I got it. You want to see it? Okay. Did a little reading on pocket. God. just kind of intrigue. pocket. God, what? what in the this is pocket. God, one of these top selling things you buy on iTunes. This is the description that from from iTunes. What kind of God? Little G.O.D. Would you be benevolent or vengeful play pocket God and discover the answer within yourself on a remote island? You are the all powerful God that rules over the primitive islanders. You can bring new life and then take it away just as quickly. And so apparently you can buy these different options. These are the options that you can buy. They're all ones that are vindictive. Uh, Throwing islanders into volcanoes, using islanders as shark bait, bowling for islanders with a large rock. You know, do you know what this is? You see, the people that created pocket God only think that God is vengeful. They only think that he's out to make lives miserable, to wreck your life. That, well, he's pretty capricious, and it's on any given day. You just have a bad moment, and you just throw you into a volcano or something like that. Guess what? God is completely different than that. Our world needs to know this is our generation. This is our time to show people who God is really like. That you can insult us, but we will not consider you our worst enemy. We will love you and we will pray for you. You can go after us, but we are greater than any problem because it's not about our shirt. It's about God and His glory and we want you to know Him. And so God is going to revolutionize not only first century Roman Empire, but the 21st century United States, our world, through Christians who do as He has said. Now, I don't uh, I was trying to think about like, do I have enemies? I'm sure I've got some people that don't like me, um, but I didn't really think I've had a lot of enemies per se. I just really couldn't put a lot of folks down like, well, they're my enemy. They stated as such. I've had some people in my life that are hard to get along with. I'm, I'm sure you have too. Um, I recall I was praying through this and kind of working through this text. I, Corinne and I, when we uh, first moved into our very first place that we bought our own, was a little condo, okay? 860 square foot little condo in Beaverton, Oregon. Had two common walls. We were in the middle. And uh the guy on the, on the right-hand side, he's fine. He had some dogs that were a little annoying, but, you know, hey, we we're all living together, right? The lady next door who he had a common wall with, Rosemary, different story. She made my life miserable. She was mean-spirited she could yell at me for anything at any time like what in the world uh and to make matters more complicated okay so we had our little baby ashley and what do babies do babies cry right and our choir director said it's good for babies to cry because it develops their lungs so i was like that sounds good to me you know put her in the room (laughs) okay well that just made rosemary totally unhappy you know and and friends would come over. We'd have meetings. I'm, you know, I was a youth pastor, I'd have all the kids come over, right? And we'd try to keep it down, and we are being getting good and all the stuff like that. She hated all of those things and, and wanted me to know about that very vocally and publicly, et cetera. Uh, this was really tough. I had a backyard, but I couldn't access it unless I went through an easement that went through her backyard, okay? So we had these rose bushes and all these trees and things, so I'd have to trim them. But I had to cross through her backyard, which I had an easement. It was all part of the agreements and stuff. Well, she had this ferocious dog that she just let out on me and like, oh, my goodness. And, uh, and she wouldn't, you know, I couldn't get it. And I'd like, hey, you know, I need to get my stuff through because the debris pickup is. And she'd care less. She made my life really hard. And I, I came to a point that as kind of a as a newer believer. God had put Rosemary in my life for me to grow up and to become like my father. These verses here. These aren't just cute little Bible verses for me. This was my training ground. Proverbs, Romans 12, 1 Peter 2 and 3. See, God uses his word to develop us and mature us. And he puts situations in our life to do just that so that we will reflect his love and his kindness. There are a lot of things that I thought I could say to Rosemary and help my tongue. And on my better days, I was able to do the things I felt like would honor God. Help her when she was sick, check on her, um, do different things that were totally against my being, but were everything about the Spirit of God working in me. Not like I was all perfect, but I tell you, these words can bring us to a greater maturity if we are willing to do them. See, God wants us to show the reality of the risen Lord, and to do so, through our life. Some of you will recognize this guy by the name of Wade Boggs. He was a former Boston Red Sox third baseman Hall of Famer. And uh, every time they went and played the Yankees, you know how the Yankees and the Red Sox get along. Just a wonderful combination, right? And uh, there was a guy that was a heckler. He had a box seat right there by third base. And man, he just loved to dig into box. And he thought he'd just make a career out of that. He was He was very insulting, always ripping him apart, and and really got under his skin. Well, one time they were playing the Yankees. He's warming up, and sure enough, there's the guy, and he's ripping him up. You know, kind of variations on the theme of Bob, Boggs, you stink, okay? I won't elaborate, but he was just tearing him up. Finally, Boggs had enough. So he uh, kind of stopped warming up He walks over to the box where this guy is sitting with his buddies. He said, hey! Hey, are you the fellow that's always uh, giving me a bad time and yelling at me? Yeah, that's me. What are you going to do about it? You know, Boggs uh, reached into his pocket, pulled out a new baseball, pulled out a pen, he autographed it, and he tossed it up to him. Now, he tossed it at 80 miles an hour and bent it in his chest. He didn't. He just tossed it up to him, and we went back. And continued his warm-up. And from that day forward, that guy never once again insulted him. In fact, became his biggest fan when he played the Yankees. Friends, that's what we need to do. People that are hurting us, ripping us up at work, in our neighborhoods, at our schools, on the team, in our band. Love them with the love of Christ. You are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I will make this a reality and you will mature and grow. Let me give you the worst stage in the world right now where this is taking place Rwanda, where you got 800,000 to a million people that were killed by these Hutu extremists. You know what's taking place right now? People with the love of Christ following this passage are putting it to play, and a country is being healed in our sight in this time because God, as it were, And so, friends, we, the salt and the light of this earth, reflect the goodness, the greatness, and the love of our Savior. You see, we truly live when we really know Christ as our Lord. We experience His righteousness. We keep thinking about it, reviewing it. We walk in His strength. Lord, use me and fill me. And we do as He says. And the world is revolutionized. And the kingdom is advanced and people come to know the living Christ and what God is really like. Let us pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Not that it is easy to read it, but that you do a work that could only be explained as heart surgery. As we seek your face, yield to you. Say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here today who who has never trusted your son and just even reading these passages realize their life is a picture of hatred and lying and vengeance, that they would right now confess this before you as sin and turn from all their sin, self-centeredness, and right now trust in your son Jesus, the Savior for sinners, the one who has paid the penalty for sin and has risen again to offer life to all who will believe in him. And Father, for all of us, Lord, you know our shortcomings, you know our failures. We, we don't rationalize them, we confess them. Father, we ask that you would make loving and living in your son a reality. That what we've read here would not just be pages in a book. would be truly your law written in our hearts and lived in our lives. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name.